1: everyone this is chris grasso with the indie spirituals podcast on the be here now network and my guest today is a dear friend of mine preston fassell preston thank you so much for taking the time to be with me today
2: Oh, thank you for having me
1: yeah, definitely my pleasure. Um, I'm super excited about this conversation because uh, it's really, I think, unlike any I've had on the show before. And I mentioned that because usually when I read bios, you know, they're a short paragraph or so. But um, And that's what Preston sent me. But I intentionally wanted to read a longer version of his accomplishments because... Uh, one, I'm a, a huge fan of Preston and his work, and uh, I'm just really impressed with everything he's done. And two, a lot of listeners on this network may not be familiar with uh, what we're going to be talking about. So, kind of want to give you a little extra background before we jump into this conversation. So, that said, Preston Fossell is an award winning novelist, journalist, and and screenwriter whose work has appeared in Fangoria magazine, Rumor magazine, Scream magazine, and on Cinedump.com. In 2011, he graduated uh, cum laude from Sam Houston State University with a BS in psychology and part of Psi Chi, the National Psychology Honors Association. Fassell's horror journalism career began writing DVD reviews for Rue Morgue magazine in 2013 before moving on to feature stories for the publication, contributing to three cover stories over the course of his four-year stint with them. From 2015 to 2017, Fasel continued writing for Rue Morgue and making occasional contributions to Scream while also coming on board as the assistant editor of CineDump.com. A general pop culture website. During this period, Facel received multiple Rondo Award nominations, which I believe you've won three of those. Correct?
2: Preston? No, I'm still yet to win a Rondo. Oh, okay. Um, you... I'm holding out hope for next year, though.
1: Okay, but you, hey, nominations are huge. So okay, uh, for his insightful uh, profiles on legendary figures in the entertainment community, including author Herman Rauscher and actress Kelly Maroney ultimately amassing four uh, four nominations. Written in 2014, Faisal's manuscript for Our Lady of the Inferno, an homage to the horror films of the 1980s, gained the attention of Dallas Sonier, CEO of the Dallas-based company, or production company, Cinestate, which had recently acquired the legendary Fangoria magazine. Sonier purchased both the publishing and film rights to the manuscript, in addition to hiring Facel as a staff writer for Fangoria and creative executive for CineState in the later capacity. Uh, Facel finds and helps acquire scripts and future product projects for the company's film production wing. Since its publication by Fangoria, Our Lady of the Inferno has received overwhelming praise from both the horror community and the literary world. Being named one of the 10 best horror books of 2018 by BloodyDisgusting.com and winning the 2019 Independent Book Publishing Award for Horror. Continuing to work in the Fangoria corporate offices in Dallas, Preston is a regular fixture on the company's social media platforms, providing commentary alongside Fangoria social media director Natasha, is it Pasquetta? Oh, Pasetta. Pasetta, thank you. On a variety of horror films and multimedia. He is currently working on a script for a film adaptation of Our Lady of the Inferno and serving as co-producer on a fully cast audio adaptation alongside Mark Miller, Clive Barker's former production partner, and a Rondo recipient for his restoration of the director's cut of Nightbreed. The drama will feature the voices of Barbara Crampton... Doug Bradley and Mick Garris, so again, Preston welcome so or welcome to the show, and thank you so much for being with me.
2: Oh, yeah, thank you for having me,
1: yeah, so you know a lot of that, as um listeners are taking it in are probably well, I'm sure there are a lot of listeners that know all of what that is, and then I'm sure there's a lot of listeners right now scratching their head, hmm, so what the hell is Chris having this? horror writer um, on his podcast for, which we're about to get into. Um, Preston and I have become friends over the last year, and uh, what I really appreciate is we've had a lot of conversations around uh, the psychology of horror, how it actually is very relatable to the human experience, uh, ways in which we can actually learn from horror in our personal lives, Uh, but we're going to get into all of that later. What I like to do, Preston, on my podcast is um, give my guests, uh, however long they'd like, to start out and give us kind of your backstory. I know we just covered a lot of the highlights of your life, but essentially, you know, you can start wherever you'd like from childhood, teenage years. um, And just tell us about Preston and Preston growing up and what led you to where you are today.
2: Uh, Yeah, I was uh, born in Houston. Uh, My uh, father worked for the phone company during the period when computers were first really becoming a force in the office and first becoming a force in telecommunications. Mm. And uh, he was a lineman at the time. And he had signed up for this program where if you agreed to work for the company for X number of years, they would uh, train you in uh, using uh, computers. Yeah. And so he, uh, he did that. And then when I was 18 months old, he was transferred to work in the uh, headquarters, One Bell Center in uh, St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, grew up in Missouri from time that I was 18 months until I was 11. And then he got transferred to work on the Y2K project for Southwestern Bell, which for wow. some reason was based out of Tulsa, Oklahoma. And hmm. and so from the time that I was 11 until the time I was 18, uh, lived in Tulsa, which was a radically different experience from St. Louis, I had a uh, had a very kind of tonally bifurcated childhood, the, uh, the the urban years, and then the rural years, which I think gave me a uh, very unique set of perspectives on the world. Sure. Uh, and then after I, uh, shortly after I turned uh, 18, moved uh, back to Texas, where I've been ever since. Bounced around from Houston to San Antonio to uh, Dallas now, with a very brief stint back in Tulsa, somewhere in between all of that. I uh, spent a summer living with my brother back in 2009. Um, I've always wanted to be a writer. Uh, when I was six years old, uh, the principal at our school decided to retire and all of the elementary school students were tasked with writing stories about why she was leaving the school. Mm. And I came up with this very strangely elaborate story that the students were behaving too well and there was this incentive program at the school at the time where if you were a well-behaved student you got like this little gold slip of paper that you could redeem for like little goodies and gifts and in my story she was getting overwhelmed with how many of these were being handed out and was afraid that the, the school wasn't going to be able to redeem them all and so she broke into the school one night and vandalized the school and blamed <laughs> it on all the students but then the police found out and so she was leaving the school because she had to go on the run now. Oh my God. And I write this story and I turn it in. My teacher reads it. And then my, uh, my teacher leaves her, her aide in charge of the classroom. She leaves and she comes back and she says, Preston, you need to go to the principal's office. And I'm thinking to myself, Oh no, what have I done? I've gone too far. Uh, and I get taken down to the principal's office and my first grade teacher sits me down and she says, read Mrs. Pellissier your story. And, uh, no, no, this was Mrs. Tomein, it was the it was the assistant principal, Mrs. Pellissere left later, I, said, I read it to Mrs. Tomein, mm. and I, I sit there and I read it to her, and then my first grade teacher and the vice principal just burst out laughing, and that was when I knew that I had the, the ability to affect people with the ideas that I came up with, and to tell stories that people enjoyed, and that uh, had some kind of power over people, and, and ever since then, I knew I wanted to be a storyteller of some kind, and when I was 13 years old, I uh, was waiting in line with my mom at the pharmacy, and we're in Tulsa at this point, and I see Stephen King's The Shining mm-hmm. in paperback on one of those rotating wire racks where they used to actually sell real books in the drugstore, uh, and it was the first real adult book that i was interested in i had read all of those great illustrated classics for kids and i had read you know uh, the Goosebumps series and i'd read all these junior novelizations but i decided i'm 13 now i'm a teenager i want to read a real book and i was aware of the jack nicholson movie even though i'd never seen it at the time and jack nicholson was my favorite actor and i said mom i want to read the shining and to her credit, my mom says, sure, why not? And wow. buy 13-year-old me The Shining. <laughs> and I read it, and I end up doing my final book report of the year on it for seventh grade. Wow. And reading this, I decided, you know what? I've, I've always wanted to be a writer. Now I know I want to be a horror writer. Wow. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead.
1: No, I was just saying, wow, I'm, I'm floored by seventh grade. That's, that's amazing.
2: Yeah, I, I've... Uh, one of my uh, roles here at CineState is, for lack of a better word, super reader. Uh, our uh, vice president, uh, Amanda Presnick, she recently did an interview with uh, Dread Central where she said that uh, she thinks that I'm one of the fastest readers she knows. Wow. And I joke I joke that that's like a superpower that has an origin story. Um for the first four years of school, I went to a Catholic school in St. Louis, and then I ended up in the public school system in Oklahoma, and I didn't realize it at the time, and maybe my parents didn't either, but the uh, the academic regimen at the Catholic school was light years ahead of yeah. what the, the public school system's uh, curriculum was. And in fifth grade, I was already reading at a 10th grade level, and Jeez. for my english and literature classes in fifth grade i was literally coming in sitting down you know we had worksheets or we had reading assignments and i would literally be done within the first 10 minutes of a two-hour class and my fifth grade english and literature teacher had all these bookshelves in her classroom stopped with the the you know the great illustrated classics she had uh, all the goosebumps books the anamorphs books and so for essentially an entire year I would come to school every day and just read a book for two hours straight. And I made it a personal goal to finish all of the great illustrated classics that she had on this, uh, I think it was a red bookshelf over in the kind of the right-hand corner of the classroom from where I faced it. Yeah and so i spent this year like you know really honing my reading capabilities and comprehension capabilities in this effort to try and finish all the books on this one particular shelf and i joke that's the that's the origin story for my my reading superpowers so i don't mean to, to interject
1: here but it's funny you mentioned both stephen king and superpowers because um since we're kind of in the horror uh sci-fi you know vibe here I'm going to ask you to, you know, work on telepathically sending me those reading superpowers because uh, (laughs) I need them. I, you know, just about me really quick. Um, And I'm going to talk about this later. Um, I am a slow reader because up until recently, uh, I read a lot of nonfiction. I'm a big nerd. I love like uh, neuroscience and physics and, you know, uh, just learning about, like, human nature and the universe. So, uh, you know, I I read slowly so that I could really absorb it. And now, um, again, which we'll talk about in a little bit when we get to your book, I've, like, rekindled my love of fiction. Um, And so I'm going to be a guest on an NPR show on October 25th. They gave me a copy of Stephen King's new book, The Institute, which I'm absolutely loving and I'm reading as fast as I can. But, like, I'm only on, I think I just crossed over hunt page 200 last night and I still have like over 300 to go. And with my schedule, it's like I need this reading superpower. So, you know, Preston, I'm going to need you to help me out with that. Um, we can talk <laughs> about that later. But anyway, so you read all of these books, which is absolutely amazing because I hated reading until 24 I now have the words bookworm tattooed across my knuckles because books are the most like important thing to me. But um, so you're you're this incredible reader. Uh, so please continue.
2: Oh, well, uh, so, you know, uh, throughout the remainder of middle school, high school, I know that I want to be a writer. I know now that I want to be a horror writer. Uh, but at the same time, I had kind of a very realistic of the writing profession that I was going to need to have some kind of day job and then support myself, uh, with that while I was trying to pursue a writing career. Mm. And I really came of age around the time of CSI when that, you know, just exploded and became a huge phenomenon. And then they came out with the, uh... The film adaptation of Hannibal, and then the the remake of Red Dragon with Ray Fiennes, and yeah. I was just really, you know, inspired by all of this, and decided, uh, oh, you know, you're interested in the the, the dark side of humanity anyway, and uh, you know, something about this just connected with me, and I said to myself, well, I'm going to go into uh, forensic psychology. Yes. And I'm going to uh, be one of these uh, investigators, and I'm going to you know, help catch serial killers. And yeah, I'm 16 at the time. Uh,
1: <laughs> kind of like and, a, the Dexter vibe?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And uh, so after I got out of high school, and I say I got out of high school, I dropped out of high school. Uh-huh. Uh, the uh, What would have been my senior year, there were these very severe budget cuts to a bunch of the electives. Mm at my high school. And in Oklahoma at the time, your senior year, the only required class was an English class. So you went to school, you had one English class and then six electives. And three weeks before my senior year was scheduled to start, I get a phone call and it's the school telling me that every single elective I have signed up for has been canceled as a result of budget cuts. Uh And I need to come down and choose six new electives and it's stuff like weightlifting or gym or track and at the time i weighed 300 pounds i don't think that i saw the sun more than 30 minutes a day um uh, i could choose a band and i hadn't picked up a musical instrument since i was 10 years old and so i said to my parents look uh the only required class is english you know i don't need it Uh, If I agree to get a job, will you just let me take the GED test and let me drop out of high school? And they said yes. And I took the GED test and got my GED something to the tune of seven or eight months before I would have graduated high school. Mm. And I went to work as an intern for the Broken Arrow Oklahoma Police Department. And I was going in and I was working essentially as an evidence clerk, helping to, you know, tag evidence as it came in. My uh, big duty was that they were transitioning from having actual in-person auctions at City Hall to this website. And I don't know if it's even still around or not, but it was called stealitback.com. And it was essentially eBay, but all the items on the website came from police department evidence rooms. And I was helping to spearhead this initiative to catalog and clear all this evidence with the city attorney for representatives from steal it back to come out to the evidence room, collect it, and then take it back with them. And I did that from 2003 until the late fall of 2004 uh, ended up going to college, uh, studying abnormal psychology, uh, really seriously pursuing this as a uh, line of work. Yeah, and then several things happened in my personal and my academic life that made me realize uh, maybe this uh, this isn't right for you. Uh, my uh, my mother was diagnosed with a leukemia in 2007. And that really uh, kind of put the brakes on my academic career for a while because I was working to help support her. And there was all these problems with hospital bills where I was having to go down to the hospital and argue and negotiate with them because she wasn't in any condition. My dad was working full time. I was taking one to two courses a semester. And so I was just, you know, really dragging out this whole abnormal psychology academic career. And then also at the same time, I had the misfortune to meet a few real life psychopaths, Um, not, not serial killers. I'm not saying that I met like any kind of like Ted Bundy maniacs, but your, your banality of evil, run of the mill, just like absolutely remorseless, conscienceless people. And unfortunately had to deal with them for an extended period of time and realize You know, this is going to be your life if you go into this line of work. Do you have what it takes to deal with this type of person day in, day out for the rest of your life? And I had to say, no, I I don't have the psychological wherewithal to do that. I am not the person that you want in charge of keeping these people in check. Mm -hmm. And on a much lighter note, I'm also fairly absent-minded and somewhat of a klutz. I don't (laughs) think that you want me (laughs) helping to do this kind of stuff. Sure, sure. Uh, But at the same time, uh, I I was continuing to write. I was writing short stories for my college's uh, literary journal. I had a couple of uh, stories published there. I was uh, just writing for my own amusement. Uh, Around the same time that my mother was diagnosed with leukemia, I started to write this book about the lives of the employees of a movie theater in 1970s Times Square. Right. I had uh, read and fallen in love with a book called Sleazoid Express, which is written by a couple named Bill Landis and Michelle Clifford. Mm-hmm. And Bill Landis had lived in New York in the 1980s and was part of the whole 42nd Street Times Square grindhouse scene. And uh, I decided I'd like to write about this in in fictional form, and kind of tell this uh, Paul Thomas Anderson-style tale of the dying days of 42nd Street. Mm. And I started working on that book around the time that my mother was diagnosed, and I was uh, working on it on and off for several years, and it was uh, was absolutely terrible. Uh, (laughs) I got up to like 225,000 words nothing had really happened yet it was all exposition sure but uh, i was continuing to write i was continuing to pursue that and uh even though i decided not to pursue the forensic psychology degree i did end up with a science degree from sam houston yeah and uh i'd always been interested in optics and in eyewear as kind of a side hobby because i'm the sort of person who has very strange hobbies and interests like that and collected vintage eyeglasses and could tell you about the history of different frame designs and decided well you've got this area of knowledge you've got this uh scientific backgrounds you should turn optics into a career and so i got a career i got a job as an optometric assistant in 2012 and uh that is actually where i discovered that there was a way to monetize my writing after all the very first writing job i got was for an optical magazine called 2020. Mm. And it's uh, the trade publication of the uh, the optometrical world. And one day in between patients, I was sitting around reading their uh, monthly newsletter. And there was an article in it that uh, was just terrible from every aspect. <laughs> it, was, it was advocating what I thought was uh, very dishonest sales techniques and like ways to like talk around the truth with your patients and just from a strictly grammatical standpoint it was just terribly written uh and so i did what was probably the, the, the the most the the bitchiest thing i could have done i i copied and pasted the a paragraph from the article into an email to the editor of the magazine And I said, uh, with the rise of online optical, the uh, optometric profession is facing challenges like it's never faced before, and people in the optometric field are generating a reputation for being dishonest and overcharging, and publishing stuff like this is only going to encourage that, and by the way, the writing sucks, and here's why. And I, I actually like I actually, like, fucking diagrammed an entire (laughs) paragraph in an email demonstrating why, objectively speaking, this was poorly written. Wow. And I figure this editor's going to get this, and he's going to think, wow, you're an asshole, and that's going to be it. And to my surprise, a couple of weeks later, he actually writes back and he says, you know what, you're right, this shouldn't have run, we're gonna pull it, and by the way, if you think you're such a good writer, why don't you submit something to us? And now there's a pattern There's a pattern in my life, some things I'm very savvy about, some things I am able to latch on to the inner workings of a situation and see 10 steps down the road and swing things completely in my favor. Mm. And then there's other situations where stuff goes right the fuck over my head. And this was this was one of the latter situations, because I did not realize whatsoever that he was being sarcastic with me. And I think to myself, oh, boy, they want me to write for them. (laughs) So I sit down and I write an article about the history of of Pince Nez eyewear, uh, like the the, the Morpheus and the Matrix sunglasses. Sure. Yeah. And, And I submit it and the editor writes back and he says, wow, you actually are a really good writer. How would you like to join our staff? And that was seven years ago. And, uh, to this day, I'm still a contributing editor to 2020 magazine. Oh, wow. And, uh, that was the beginning of my, uh, my writing career. And then that, uh, that spiraled into writing for Rue Morgue and, uh, everything that, uh, you laid out in my bio at the beginning of the program. And, uh, that's kind of the, uh, entire history of Preston.
1: Wow, man. I mean, that's incredibly impressive to say the least, um, Thank you for sharing all that. I relate to a lot of it. Um, I also am very much attracted to the darker side of life, have been since a teenager. Um, I actually used to lead meditation groups in a... uh, facility for the uh mentally and criminally insane uh which was always very interesting like I have plugs in my ear so I'd have to put like solid plugs in and um all these precautions I teach all over but that was uh something I did for a while and 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 yeah like I said interesting but um I've always had this fascination with the darker side of life and um and the being overweight I was obese as well almost like 300 pounds um I think you and I have discussed like being bullied when we were younger and um, you know I I feel like a lot of that maybe plays into um, interests as we grow up at least for myself but um, that said I wanted to talk about well there's a number of things I want to talk about but first I want to get into your book Our Lady of the Inferno Um, this book uh, as I mentioned earlier First of all, I'm so excited to see that Fangoria not only is back, but is like bigger and doing, you know, just these Dallas's vision of Fangoria is incredible. You know, oh, yeah, let's do movies. Let's do books. Let's do podcasts. You know, it's like, wow. Welcome back in a huge way. And so uh, Our Lady of the Inferno, if I'm not mistaken, was the first Fangoria published book or second?
2: It was, yes. The first. Yes, it was the first.
1: Okay, so, you know, I we I think we're connected. I didn't know you all that well, but, um, you know, I, I, I'm i like, wow, well, Fangory is putting out. I've got to check it out. And <clears throat> this book... Um, was amazing. Like I said, up until this book, I was like a strictly, not strictly, but a mostly nonfiction reader. Um, I, of course, love people like Neil Gaiman and, you know, weird stuff like that, but it had been a long time uh, since I'd read any fiction. It was just, uh, my bookshelves are littered with nonfiction. So I pick up this book, and by the time I am done with it, uh, you have completely rekindled through this work my love of fiction and since then which has been um, I don't know almost a year give or take uh, I've read like 95% all I read now is fiction um, thanks to this book like that's how much like it just engulfs me and uh, I I don't blow smoke up anyone's ass on this show Um, I don't have people (laughs) on this show if I'm not interested in their work Um, so Really, I can't speak highly enough about this book. What I wanted to do quickly, if it's cool with you, is just read the back jacket to give readers kind of that overview of what the book's about and yeah. then have you talk a little bit about it. And then from there, we're going to jump into more uh, just like general horror films, the psychology of horror and uh, and again, the way it relates to human nature and, and what takeaways there are from that. So regarding Our Lady of the Inferno. The premise, spring 1983, Sally Ride is about to go into space. Flashdance is a cultural phenomenon, and in Times Square, two very deadly women are on a collision course with destiny and each other. At 21, Jenny Curva is already legendary on 42nd Street. Uh, to the pimp for whom she works, she's the perfect weapon a vicious fighter capable of taking down men twice her size. To the girls in her stable, she's mother, teacher, and protector. To the little sister she cares for, she's a hero. Yet Jenny's bravado and icy confidence hide a mind at the breaking point, her sanity slowly slipping away as both her addictions and the sins of her past catch up with her. At 37... Nicolette Astor is the most respected woman working at the Staten Island landfill. Quiet and competent, she's admired by the secretaries and trusted by her supervisors. Yet those around her have no idea how Nicolette spends her nights, when the hateful madness she keeps repressed by day finally emerges and she turns the dump into her own personal hunting ground to engage in a nightmarish blood sport. In the spring of nineteen eighty three, neither Ginny nor Nicolette knows the other exists. By the time summer rolls around, one of them will be dead. So, I mean, this like I said, this book was absolutely incredible, kept me engaged. Um I read it very quickly, and um, you know, from there again, thank you. Like I you turned me on to people like Grady Hendrix, and then I started seeking out other weird shit from like david wong and other writers and and that's like that's what i read now is all this insane like horror and and just weird shit but so let's talk about this because uh you had actually written this book uh what was it like uh, four years or something prior to it actually being picked up by yeah by- so yeah yeah tell yeah. Us about that.
2: yeah i started writing it in june of 2014 okay and i uh i just had like this 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 like lightning strike of inspiration and between june of 2014 and november of 2014 no matter what i was doing no matter what kind of day i had rain or shine sick or well i came home every night and for at least two hours i wrote this this story yeah uh and i mean that's including going to work working nine hour days at the, opt- uh, the optometry office. Uh, in there I had to go to Fantastic Fest for Rue Morgue and I did this like crazy one day turnaround where I drove from Houston to Austin and I had this like epic three hour long interview session with the Saska sisters and then left Fantastic Fest and drove back to Houston, came home, sat down and wrote. Nothing stopped me from doing at least my two hours a night. Sure and then throughout december of 2014 i did my my final edits and revisions on it and uh, you know trimming stuff out putting in a little bit of bits and bobs back in so the the beginning of 2015 i was uh, ready to uh, start shopping it around and then it became a process of uh, you know getting it out there in the world and i spent all of 2015 part of 2016 Sending it to everybody that I could, who had an open submissions policy right. and, you know, getting shot down time after time after time. Yep. And finally, in the uh, fall of 2016, uh, an independent press based out of Georgia called Fearfronts picked it up. And in a matter of months, it was published, got a couple of good reviews, sold about 18 copies, and then Fearfront went out of business. Yep. Uh, and in the meantime, I had uh, been an extra in uh, Puppet Master, The Littlest Reich, which yes. was uh, shot here in Dallas, where I live. Yep. Uh, a buddy of mine, uh, Jesse Hobson, who's the uh, editor of CineDump.com, had sent me the casting notice for extras and said, hey, you've uh, you've never gotten to do a set visit for room work before. This could be up op- here. T- could be your opportunity. Mm. And so I go and I do that. And then uh, I'm in the lobby of Texas Frightmare Weekend, which is the big horror con down here in Texas, and I'm mm-hmm. about to go in and host a panel on being a horror writer. And I'm holding a stack of the books that were left over from my publisher, and I hear somebody yell, hey, Preston, is that you? And I turn, and it's somebody from the set of Puppet Master. Now, the first day that I came to set for Puppet Master, I met like maybe 40 people in the first five minutes. And... Uh, You know, we shot at a hotel here in Dallas, and somebody lets me into the lobby, and they're like, Hey, I'm so and so, and I'm going to take you to meet so and so, and this is so and so. And I just got completely overwhelmed, and I'm terrible with names.
1: Sure. Oh, yeah. And
2: uh, I I somehow got it into my head that if I didn't know who somebody was, they must be an editor on the movie. And to this day, I have no idea where that came from. (laughs) And so here I am, months later, lobby of Texas Frightmare Weekend, and here's this guy from the set, and he says, Hey, what are you doing here? He says, "Well, I'm going, to go write, uh, I'm going to go host this horror panel, and you know, I wrote this book, and yada yada." And he says, "Well, can I have a copy of it? Uh, I'm on the Puppet Master panel tomorrow. Uh, will you bring me one?" And I'm thinking, "Okay, that's strange. Why is an editor for Puppet Master hosting a uh, hosting a panel?" Right. And I show up to the panel the next day, and it turns out to be Dallasani, a CEO of Cinestate and the producer of Puppet Master: The <laughs> Littlest Reich. Hmm. And this is my big oh, shit moment. And he says, hey, I read about your book online last night. It sounds interesting. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. And a couple of months go by, and I get an email from Amanda. She says, believe it or not, we've been reading and enjoying your book, and we'd like you to come down to the Sin State offices and discuss it with us. And I go down to the offices, and uh, I meet with Dallas and Amanda. And they say, uh, reason we we brought you here is because we're interested in purchasing the film rights to this. Do you own it or does your uh, publisher own it? And Going back to what I said before about those times in my life where either stuff goes over my head or I see 10 moves down the road, right. this was a 10 this was a 10 moves down the road moment for me because I brought my publishing contract with me. I pull out of my briefcase and I say, Hey, not only do I own the film rights to it, my publisher shut down and I've got the publication rights too. How would you like to put it back into print? And Dallas sits there in the conference room, reads the entire contract through, and he says, You know what? Uh, I like the sound of that. Uh, you know, you're in the free and clear with all. rights on this i'd like to buy the publication rights from you too and i'm thinking to myself you're never going to be in this position again you're never going to be in this room again you've got to just go for this and i say you know you're going to print and put my book back into print you're going to make a movie out of it why don't you hire me to work for you too and he and amanda kind of smirk at one another and he says you know what i think i might have something for you and uh And I sign a bunch of NDA, sign contracts, you know, sell, officially sell the rights. Right. And then one night I get a call from Dallas, and he says, uh, you know, I see you've signed everything you need to. I can tell you why I want to make a movie out of your book. Uh, I can tell you why I'm interested in you. I just bought Fangoria Magazine, come work for me. Wow. And what was that, like hearing that? That was something else. That, yeah. the, the, the cool thing, too, is I got that phone call in the lobby of a revival house here in Dallas, the Texas <laughs> theater, just about to go in and watch event horizon in 35 millimeter. Whoa. And it's like 35 minutes before the movie is going to start. And I take this call in the, in the lobby of this historic theater, you know, ready to go in and see this movie. And it's just like, you, 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 you can't make that up. That it, yeah. it was just, it was just too perfect.
1: Wow. So that's amazing. And
2: so, you
1: know, it's, you did some rewrites, I'm assuming, or did he just like kind of publish as is and and?
2: Uh, we put it through one more set of edits, yeah, uh, just to make sure that everything was uh, what it needed to be. Took care of a couple of continuity errors. Yep. Uh, there was a couple of uh, grammatical errors that he managed to slip by. Sure. Uh, yep. There's a, one scene where a character is described as dressing in one way, and then in another scene, he's supposed to be wearing the same clothes he had before, but he's wearing ah. different clothes. But we, we got it cleaned up and in the condition that it needed to be.
1: That's awesome. Well, again, I uh, I want to talk more about the book, but there's so much more I want to discuss and I'm keeping my eye on the clock. So, you know, reading that background, um, I or the, the back jacket of it, if you are a... Fiction reader, if you enjoy it, it falls under the horror category for sure, but it's not like a a horror in the typical sense. You know, there's a lot of psychological stuff. The story itself, I don't even want to talk about really because it's absolutely amazing. I know you did an overabundance of research um, because it does take place in 80s New York and you um, deeply researched the setting to get things very accurate. Um, so, you know, I know you went above and beyond, um, so this book really, it's something very special and I highly recommend it. We'll make sure it's linked. If you're listening to this on the Be Here Now podcast network, just scroll down and we'll have a link, uh, where you can click on it and check it out. Um, so thanks for, for sharing about that. Um, and I'm sorry, we don't have more time to actually go into the story, but, um, I just can't say enough how amazing the book is. But moving forward, um, some of the things I wanted to make sure we address, um, because this is on a podcast network where we talk about, like, well-being and things of that nature, and for me, horror, uh, as far back as I can remember, uh, even though I didn't have kind of the, uh, I don't know, the the knowledge, the wisdom, the whatever, the... um, the knowing that it was serving me in a certain way, it always has. And so first of all, I wanted to start out and ask you, in your opinion, Preston, what's a common, there's probably many, but what's a common misperception you think uh, many people have about the genre of horror?
2: Um, I would say that it, the shallow. I think that when you say horror to somebody, that uh, because of the slasher boom of the 80s and because that was really the last time that horror as an entire genre was really mainstream, that a lot of people of a particular generation have really got it into their heads that if you're talking about a horror movie or a horror book, then you have got... Naked or half-naked people running around one location getting chopped up in like Creepily sexual ways by some sort of beefy dude in a mask and there's nothing socially redeeming about it And it's just meant to satisfy the basest grossest urges of a particular subset of people that you wouldn't want to meet on the street
1: right very well said Um, couldn't agree more and so that said, what, from your perspective, and I mean, there's so many sub, uh, subgenres of horror, just like there is any genre of film or music, but what do you think we as human beings can learn
2: about ourselves from horror movies? Just about anything, really. I think that's what the really fascinating thing is about the horror genre, is that yeah. you take the the horror framework and you can discuss anything within it. Sure. Uh I mean uh back in the nineteen sixties when uh you know miscegenation was still Against the law on the books in some southern states, and you know the Civil Rights Act was uh, still in limbo as this force. Uh, George Romero was uh, talking about racism and oh, all, yeah. and uh, Night of the Living Dead yeah. uh, in the uh, 1950s when you had the uh, communist blacklists, and if you went to a communist students' union meeting in college, that could spell the end of your career later in life if anybody found out. Uh, the Thing from Another World was looking at uh, paranoia and fear of outsiders. Uh, you, You take any subject and no matter what the cultural climate, no matter what is going on, no matter what you are supposed to be able to talk about, no matter what you're supposed to not be able to talk about, if you slip it into a horror context and you dress it up in the guise of a horror story, you can discuss it, you can learn from it.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think some very contemporary um examples of that are Jordan Peele's films get out and us um but you know going back to what you were saying you know I I had the very good fortune of I think it was in 2010 sitting down with George Romero and doing an interview with him in his hotel room and really getting into the reasons why like um you know he did Night of the Living Dead the way that he did and um you know he has said and uh You know, I think it was David Landis uh, or John Landis, excuse me, who said uh, he doesn't necessarily believe this. But uh, Georgia said that he I forgot the gentleman's name, who's the lead role in Night of the Living Dead. But uh, he didn't cast him because he was African-American. He cast him because he was the best actor for the part. Uh, But John Landis was saying, you know, I never believed that. And it's hard to believe that because when you look at that film, you know, here is your protagonist, and not only that, but I mean, he's like slapping white people back in, you know, this is back in the 60s, like you are saying, and, um, you know, taking charge, only to at the end of the film, he makes it through to be shot by, like, this lynch mob, and then you see him hooked and dragged out, and it's like, you know, even if you were not even racist, but kind of on, on the fence, you know, like You can't help, I think, but start siding with this person. You know, you want to see them survive. And then, boom, the gunshot happens and he's dead. And, you know, that for the 60s was absolutely such a big statement. And then you fast forward to his follow up, I think was 10 years later with Dawn of the Dead, uh, in which he he casts uh, Ken Forey as. One of the lead roles in that Again an African American And his commentary on that You know people You know here's his return of zombies And a big portion of that First he addresses racism in the beginning With one of the cops um, You know being more focused on The they're in the ghetto And being more focused on you know Some of the people being Puerto Rican descent Rather than the fact that dude there's a zombie Apocalypse happening around you Um and then they end up, you know, later in the film at a mall and just speaking to like the the times. You know, I, I think how George may have like was let down in a way, like that, you know, there was this big boom in the sixties and then people just became consumers and you know, you there now they're zombies and at one point in the film it's like, Why are they all here? And, you know, one of the characters says it's it's what they know it's what's important to them and um i often see every year around black friday one of those memes where half of it is from dawn of the dead a scene where the zombies are trying to break into the mall and then the other half of the screen is like a legit picture of like last year's black friday and it's like how do you tell the difference you know so um and george wasn't the only one to do that of course but um he's certainly one of the pioneers are there any other uh filmmakers or movies that come to mind for you that um tackle um any kind of topics from sexuality to misogyny to you know i know we've discussed racism um, anything
2: in general you know, the, the fly and the thing, uh, the 1980s iterations, uh, I think are very, very striking uh, AIDS metaphors. Mm. Uh, you know, especially with the thing, there's that whole blood test scene and it's, it's who's contaminated, who's the one walking among us, who, uh, who shouldn't be, who's infected, right. who's going to infect the rest of us. And then the fly makes it a little bit more personal uh you know, Jeff Goblem has this argument with Gina Davis and he he does something stupid and impulsive, you know, i.e. transports himself or has a one night stand, and then in the aftermath of that he seems fine on the surface, and then he starts decaying, and it's it's hard not to see a parallel between the sorts of monstrous physical decay that uh seth brundle goes through and the the way that late stage aids patients looked back in the 1980s before there was better treatment and i think that the the way that the fly very much humanizes seth and his struggle and really makes you feel sympathy for him and what he's going through Mm. uh i think that that probably served on a subconscious level an allegorical level to uh to endear mainstream America, to people suffering from HIV and AIDS, uh, because it was within this fictionalized context, and because it was within this, this safe, uh, the safe package. Yeah. And I think that it's you know, accomplished it, whether or not the person watching it realized it or not. But on some level, I think that it probably helped to, uh, you know, helped allow people to process what was going on around them. And if you were to just make an HIV drama, which you know there were there were dozens made in the 1980s, uh, very few of which you hear people talk about today. I think maybe *The Boys in the Band* is the one that has. Uh Kind of withstood the test of time, right, yeah. uh, but you just you just make a movie about HIV and AIDS in the 1980s, and you put it in a dramatic context. There's people who are not going to see it because they don't care. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are people who are not going to be won over by it because they already have their preconceptions. They've already got their prejudices. But with a horror story, it's not about AIDS. It's not about HIV. Mm-hmm. It's about the scientist, and something happens to him. And he develops this condition. Now you've got people thinking about it. Now you've got people sympathizing with him. And that makes it so much easier to generate that sympathy because you've packaged it within that horror framework.
1: Absolutely.
2: So beautifully said. Um, So
1: moving on to a a tough question, Um, at least it would be tough for me to answer. Um, But on a personal level for you, what are a few of your favorite horror movies or franchises
2: and why? I have never been able to narrow it down past six. Okay. And I know that that is the most pretentious answer <laughs> that anybody can possibly give to that question. Uh, it's it's The Shining, okay. uh, John Carpenter's The Thing, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Hellraiser, Videodrome, and the Brian De Palma Carey. That is my uh, sacred six of horror.
1: And can you give like a one or two sentence like why those each of those films are and if it needs to be more, that's fine. But a little why are they your sacred six?
2: Uh, From a strictly technical standpoint, I think The Shining is just about a perfect horror film. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just everything works about it, and there's this tremendous sense of uncanniness to everything going on. And I think that horror that really taps into the uncanny is the most powerful. Mm. Uh, For The the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it's also got that kind of sense of the uncanny. uh, But something that I think Toby Hooper did beautifully is create this idea of kind of a cursed world, Uh, and if you ever have the opportunity to see Texas Chainsaw on the big screen, it really changes the experience of the movie, because you can really hear all these radio broadcasts really well in a movie theater, and it's surrounding you, and all the radio broadcasts that they listen to in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, just about all these horrible news stories going on in the world. And you you never really learn a lot about these kids, and you get the faintest idea of who they are and what they're doing out there, but there's just kind of this sense watching the Texas Chainsaw that, like, these people were born to be doomed, and they were born to die, and we are with them in the final moments of something that has been years in the making.
1: Right.
2: Uh, and then as somebody who's lived in Texas for the majority of his life, I've been in the Hill Country before. I would not be surprised to know that there are people like Leatherface and his family out there. Uh, right. People, people from Texas are spooked by the Hill Country. Yeah. Um, the thing, the special effects are just amazing. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think that I think that people would be hard pressed today pre- with practical effects to beat the thing. And then just John Carpenter created such this tremendous sense of dread throughout the film.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, Videodrome taps into something very personal for me. You know, I mentioned my dad working for the phone company, and I knew guys growing up like Harlan, and, like, like they had, like, Harlan's pirate lab. Uh, I don't think they were pirating TV programs. It had something to do with, you know, telecommunications, but, like, I saw equipment like that growing up. And, uh, the, the Toronto of 1983 is not that different from the St. Louis of 1986, aesthetically speaking. Right. And, uh, with, uh, with Videodrome, uh, Horror obviously is something very important to me. I love horror movies. I love horror cinema. Yeah. And so the idea of snuff movies to me have always been particularly frightening. I say that's like a snuff movie is sort of the the black mass of the cinematic universe because movies are supposed to be something fun and enjoyable and something that makes you think and something that brings people together. And then the idea that there's a movie of just like the last moments of somebody's life made for no other reason than like some person's like sick pleasure. It's like if movies are church then snuff movies are the black mass. And I think that Videodrome did such a wonderful job playing with the, the horror of that. um hellraiser hellraiser i think the cenobites are the coolest monsters to come out of the (laughs) 80s aesthetically speaking and i love how much human drama is going on below the surface of that movie that isn't foregrounded yes there's just so many small moments in that film that speak to so much more going on and i think that's just brilliance from a storytelling perspective And that this one and like an hour and a half long movie has like four hours of familial drama spilling out around it. Yeah. Uh, And then Carrie. Carrie has like some weird sentimentality for me. I was kind of the Carrie White of my high school. I was the strange, standoffish, weird kid who just wanted to love and be loved. And then I, I knew somebody very much like Carrie. I almost did take Carrie White to the prom. Oh, wow. Uh, So there's, you know, there's some bittersweet sentimentality there for me with Carrie. And, uh, you know, across the whole spectrum of special effects and what scares me and what makes me think and what touches my heart and what speaks to me as a writer. Those are the six films that cover that whole gamut and that whole spectrum.
1: I love it. And thanks for mentioning that. Um, And, you know, something that just came up to mind uh, or came to mind because you mentioned Hellraiser, which. Is of course uh, wonderful. And I've also had the good fortune of interviewing Doug Bradley, who I really appreciate because he's not a man who minces words. He is not scared to speak his mind. Um, And he has spoken out vehemently against like reboots and he did hint at um, you know and I'm not asking you anything about this but because uh, you probably know more than me but hinted at a new Hellraiser with him returning to the role which would I think be very cool and I've heard similar rumblings about A Nightmare on Elm Street and Robert England but I mentioned Doug because he cannot stand reboots and for the most part um, I hear him I agree um, I think it's lazy but um, you know, I, I have seen some that personally I do enjoy, um, uh, you know, speaking specifically to horror, not any other genre. Uh, what's your take on that?
2: I think if the person doing it is, is doing it from a place of love and if they're bringing something new and artistically sound to the reboot then I have no problem with that because, I mean, on that list of my favorite movies, The Thing, The Thing is a reboot uh, of, you know, The Thing from Another World from, right. you know, was it, 1950s, 1960s. Right. Uh, I actually think that Zack Snyder's uh, Dawn of the Dead, I'm not, I'm not going to say that it's a superior film to George Romero's, but uh, you change the title of that to, you know, all the titles coming to mind are stupid right now, but like Zombie Apocalypse 2004, I think that it stands on its own is a very solid, uh, you know, post 28 days later zombie movie. Yeah. Um, David uh, David Cronenberg's The Fly, again, you know, another kind of reboot there of uh, uh, another horror movie from the 1950s. But uh, all these people brought a unique artistic vision to it. They weren't, well, the studios were doing it to cash in on it, but the, right. the directors themselves were doing it for legitimate artistic reasons. And so if you're doing it for that, then I can not only forgive it, but if you do it well, I can get behind it. Right. Uh, God bless Jackie Earl Haley. I thought that he did a pretty, pretty decent job as Freddy Krueger. But you know that there was, you know, that that was a mercenary. Uh, move to uh, reboot to Nightmare on Elm Street. That was not somebody saying, I have a new and unique take on the Freddy Krueger mythos, and I want to bring this franchise into the 21st century, and I want to explore X, Y, and Z. That was New Line Cinema or some suit somewhere, whoever owned the rights to the franchise at the time, saying, hey, let's make $200 million because it's easy.
1: Yeah, and see, I appreciate what you mentioned when you look at things like The Fly or The Thing. These are movies, you know, that are back, um, you know, what are we talking about, the 80s, um, roughly. And I still think, like, there was integrity there. Not saying that with the film industry, because it's always been about money. But like you mentioned, with, with the director and the writers, like, and in, in their vision. And uh, I don't see that overall um, with... The majority of new reboots, Um, again, it's all subjective, so I'm not here to say what's good or not. It's just my opinion, and and that's all it is. But, you know, I get a lot of shit for this, but one reboot that I did like and I wouldn't even call it a reboot because to me it was a reimagining was when Rob Zombie redid the Halloween films and Halloween 1 is my all time favorite horror movie Michael Myers my favorite horror character uh, just you know his presence the nickname The Shape like he encompasses like that Shadow side that that young, uh, the Swiss psychologist talks about that collective unconscious, like he kind of represents that for me. This, you know, just when Luma says, like, the darkest eyes, the blackest eyes, there was nothing left. Um, but again, I know that's not a popular sentiment, people don't like that Zombie was telling the story of Michael as a child, and I know that even Carpenter said he wasn't the biggest fan of it, but um, I really appreciate that. He went for it, and he made it his own. And I think he, you know, uh, still respected the story. But again, that's my two cents. Other than that, uh, yeah, I'm not a big fan of a lot of the the reboots. But again, it's all subjective.
2: Yeah, um, yeah I love Rob Zobby as a filmmaker. Uh, I I wasn't the biggest fan in the world of his remake of Halloween. I went and saw it at the show. I didn't regret seeing it at the show. Yeah. But uh, at least he brings. brought to that he brings to everything he does a unique authorial vision right Uh, there's not another filmmaker like Rob Zombie he knows who he is he knows what he wants to do and I've greatly admired that even the films of his that I have not enjoyed I have at least respected what he was trying to do with them
1: yes agreed because I I think I like I'd say 65% of what I've seen of his maybe 70 a few films you know I was like eh um but yes, I agree. Like, even if I didn't like the film, same. Like, respect for for doing your thing and, and making it your own. So, um, let's see. A couple of last-minute questions because we're, we're running short. Um, off the topic, personal, just a little fun. What inspires you, Preston,
2: in life? Really random stuff. Yeah. Um Without spoiling too much about Lady of the Inferno, uh, Lady of the Inferno actually began life because I saw three different television series all drop the ball on the same plot idea. Ah. And I just thought to myself, you guys have got gold here, and you're treating it like a joke or like an afterthought, and this could be done so much better. Do you mind naming
1: Uh, the shows or would you rather?
2: Okay, uh, we'll see if anybody can pick out what I'm getting at uh, without spoiling the book. The shows were American Horror Story Season 3. Okay. Dexter Season 3. Okay. And the Venture Brothers Season 3. Ah, Uh, Season 3. Season 3 of the Venture Brothers, American Horror Story, and Dexter all played with the same idea in different episodes. And they all treat it as kind of a joke. And absolutely. I thought to myself, no, this is absolutely terrifying if you see it through to its logical conclusion. Mm. Um, I guess more broadly speaking, it's seeing the possibility in ideas that uh, other people like dismiss or think are jokes yeah. or don't see through. And then also, I'm also inspired by, uh, by very sick jokes. A lot of, uh, of my best ideas for stories have started out <laughs> as really dark, really sick jokes. Uh, actually, I've just finished work on another project recently. It began life as a, uh, uh, as a very dark joke about a certain type of movie consumer and the types of movies that this personality type would enjoy. I'm I'm going to leave that there.
1: I can certainly appreciate that. So on the flip side,
2: what are you most afraid of in life? I'm not going to put that out there in the world. (laughs) I don't know who's listening to this. I've seen all the Saw movies. I don't want to wake up in a room tomorrow like (laughs) like changed like a bed made out of human skin. Skeletons with like some puppet on a TV screen asking me if I'm ready to face my fears.
1: <laughs> I can respect that. So let me rephrase then. Um Culturally speaking, let's say so not Preston specifically, but worldwide speaking, what what, you know, brings fear to you, if anything?
2: Lack of empathy. Hmm. Um I saw a uh, television movie several years ago about the Nuremberg trials where uh, Alec Baldwin plays one of the prosecutors and uh, I've never read the transcripts of the closing arguments at the actual Nuremberg trials so I don't know if this is actually from the real transcripts or if this was an invention of the screenwriter but as part of his closing statements the Alec Baldwin character says evil is the absence of empathy. And that really struck me because when we are not able to see the world through other people's eyes, when we're not able to put ourselves in other people's shoes, when we're not able to find common ground with people, that's when it becomes easy to start hurting them. Oh, so- and so a lack of empathy in the world is what scares me. And it seems that there's a there's a tremendous lack of empathy in the world right now.
1: Yeah. and uh,
2: Yes. And I mean, I'm not just talking about like one side of a political spectrum. I see I see it everywhere. You either agree with me or you're the scum of the earth. Right. And that's a terrifying perspective to me.
1: Uh, Oh, we couldn't agree more on that. And that's why even politically speaking or not, I always, you know, that's why I reiterated earlier, it's subjective. And I try to always... You know, if I like something and someone else doesn't, I don't argue it. That's fine because it's all our personal, you know, opinions. And that's based on our upbringings and the lenses and filters through which have been instilled in us, you know, throughout our lives. So who am I to say I'm right and you're wrong? I mean, when there's certain things such as like racism or homophobia or misogyny, things of that nature, uh, I don't think there's any middle ground whatsoever. But, you know, with general stuff like what you like, what you don't like, hey man, whatever works for you as long as you're not harming yourself or others, cool. So I really appreciate you saying that. And and I guess just to wrap this up and bring it full circle, uh, I know we've really addressed this, but just to make it concise, why do horror films
2: matter? I think it goes back to what we were talking about before, that uh, they are the perfect medium for exploring anything you want to. Mm. Uh, you, you certainly can't do that with drama. Everything is kind of out there on the surface uh, to to a certain extent you can do with comedy, but then you've got to make sure that you're, you're amusing the audience and there's certain things, there's certain topics that you've got to be exceptionally skilled at to discuss them through the, the scope of comedy uh but but with horror you you can just you can just about explore anything and uh i think that it's a very important uh sub-genre it's a very important genre for us to have as a people uh because it lets us do that it lets us explore what scares us it lets us explore what frees us it lets us explore what's going on with the world what's wrong with the world how we can fix what's wrong with the world Uh, And as long as there's horror, there's going to be this sort of uh, cinematic literary Roman forum where people can come together and discuss these things and explore these things and hopefully learn and grow from them.
1: Wonderfully said. Preston, I thank you so much for your time. The name of the book again, Our Lady of the Inferno. Uh, It's available through, I believe, Fangoria uh, is definitely on Amazon. Um, uh,
2: yeah, Amazon is the best bet. Uh, we uh, just recently uh, finished reprinting it. Uh, perfect. I'm very fortunate to say that it sold out. Uh, but then we also did not expect it to sell out as quickly as it did. So we've just recently got a new uh, stock that should be available soon on uh, Amazon, but they are taking pre-orders. Uh, awesome. But uh, a- Amazon is the most reliable way to uh, to order the book.
1: Awesome. Well, I'm so glad and um, I don't know if you have a website or if anyone wants to keep up with your work, Preston. Is there a way they can follow you? I know you speak and hold panels and are at various events. Is uh, is how can people keep uh, track of you?
2: Uh, Twitter is the best. Sure. Uh, at p r e s t o n f a s s e l. Okay, at Preston Facel
1: on Twitter. Preston, thank you so much for your time. Um, This was an awesome conversation. I wish we had like three or four more hours because there's a ton of shit we didn't get to that I wanted to and even condensed a lot of what I wanted to cover. But um, I think this was a great start. So this just means I'm going to have to have you back on the show again sometime. So I really appreciate it. Thanks for your work. Thanks for your writing. And uh, you're an inspiration to me. So I thank you personally for that.
2: Thank you. And thank you again for having me. And I'd uh, be happy to come back anytime.
1: Awesome, Preston. Thanks so much.